Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. This is part two of the Metatopia Saturday episode, so we'll get to that in a second. Just want to let you know there's a couple of days left to go give your feedback to the five finalists for the design contest. So if you head over to theboardgameworkshop.com, you can see the five finalists, how to play videos, their pitch videos, their rules, and uh, give them your feedback and ratings. Now, on to the show. John is joining us. Hello. Hello, John. How's your Metatopia? It's going real good. Awesome. How about you? Good. Good. Demoing anything? Yeah, I had a bunch of play tests. Awesome. Yeah, uh, probably like, I mean, I've been booked from like 10 a.m. until 10 p.m. every night, so. That's a long day. Yeah. You want to say something? Yeah, I, I was just going to build off of what he was saying about, um, how the industry is going. I think one of the things that we as designers uh, should start learning and realizing is that you need to understand the economics of getting into this business a little better before you get into it. Because it looks very simple from the outside, right? Like, oh, it's just, uh, I can make cards, it's easy to make cards, I can buy these wooden maples, I'm good to go. But I hear people it's all the time say cardboard is cheap. It is a deceptively easy, it looks deceptively easy and then as you get into it you learn more and more and more and all the gotchas that you don't realize yeah exactly and, and we learned those lessons the hard way over the course of these past two years and like we, so Rang and I worked for work, the company we worked for uh, has been set to pay our mortgages uh, we actually deal with new product launch and and uh, manufacturing and, and engineering all the time and even even though we have that experience, once you try to take it over to a board game and trying to launch your own thing and trying to go from scratch and figure out all of the parts and pieces that go into it, it's so overwhelming. Like, and, and yeah, and and it's uh, more than anything else, right? It's about are you sure that you understand the economics of it before yeah, exactly. you go to something exactly. like Kickstarter? Because what what ends up happening is like your example with Mechs versus Minions is you end up in a situation where you have lowered the bar for the price point for everyone else and now the entire industry is starting to hurt because people are starting to expect games for cheaper and cheaper even though two years ago the same game might have retailed for 50 now it's just expected to retail for 30 so we should ask ourselves are we doing the right thing for the business are we, are we just trying to do short-term things to try and gain a little bit of market for ourselves ending up hurting the overall uh, industry john if, if you have you seen yourself think differently in some of the new roles you've taken on in, in regards to that even what you're putting out or what you're looking for and things like that um, in what they're discussing i don't think i think differently about it because i try to associate my companies myself with companies that i feel like have good business practices and don't do things like that that hurt the industry but i definitely like like you mentioned metzler's minions and gloomhaven and some other games have definitely done some things that they were able to do because of their company structure that other companies just can't and customers expect it and it's unrealistic a lot of times because a company with five people has to pay all their employees and you can't just give away free shipping to everybody because yeah. you have to pay all those employees so i mean with my new role with pandasaurus like they're a company that thoroughly understands that and you know tries to address that with customers up front so 
Well, I think the real answer is don't self-publish. <laughs> you know, I think generally, Pitch yes. to John Gilmore. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's part of the thing. You have so many people self-publishing. It's, it's fracturing the industry. Absolutely. Which you have a lot of conglomeration. Well, that's, that's the rubber banding I was talking about, where it's expanding and expanding because we have all these tiny, small self-publishers who are... Well, that's the thing. It's, on the high end, you have, like, Asmodee eating up companies. Right. So a lot of consolidation up on the high end. But then on the low end, it's so many fractured, like, single people becoming a publisher, doing a Kickstarter, and every single person is doing it. And then maybe they're dropping out. They do one game, and it's not actually anything. But some people do a second game and a third game. Right. It's, it's a very strange structure we have. But, but let's, let's be is. honest. Asmodee is not the evil of them. No. no, they're not. I actually, because I'm on the other side of it. A Dead of Winter came out through Plat Hat. Plat Hat's been acquired by First F to Z, and now F to Z was acquired by Asmodee. So right. like, and then Asmodee just got bought by someone, right? Yeah, they just sold last week. They announced it at Essen, right? Um, but. Asmodee isn't just like gobbling up companies to consolidate the industry and try to form a monopoly. They're strategically picking up companies that they feel like are strong and building those companies. Right. And when you see monopolies, like the company is buying companies and essentially liquidating them to eliminate competition. Right. Whereas they're trying to like build up portions of the industry to be stronger. Right. But I, I just see a lot of designers who they want they want a man to fight back against and so they pick Asmodee and it's like no they're they're not the man I see, this, I see the same thing with people who have failed Kickstarters complaining about Simon. Mm. yeah oh they ruining all Kickstarter Simon okay. is not ruining Kickstarter they're making Kickstarter stronger because they're bringing more people to the platform every time they want yeah there's a lot more visibility there yeah and when they're running a th- you know two or three million dollar Kickstarter other Kickstarters are doing very well at the same time because the customers are coming to the platform. So like I think not I think a lot of the time it's the general I failed at something so I need to find something to blame for my failure. Yeah, it's gonna be a besides me. Yep. Yeah. It's hard to do when, it is. when you when you flop to to, to like but, take a step back and look and see like what exactly you did you did wrong and, and reflect objectively about that and, and really try to address those things. It's, but you absolutely have it's to tough like, for I mean, anyone, I've, yeah. I've got plenty of failed products on I've got like twelve games out. Yeah, yeah. And none of you can name all twelve of those games because some of them were oh, real yeah, bad. John Tryman. <laughs> some of them were real bad. Time work. <laughs> By the way, yeah, not joining us is Doug Lewandowski. <laughs> Yeah, some of them were real bad and not do well. So, you know, when those failures, I have to look at why they failed and how can I improve on that with my next problem. Yeah, it's so part of the growing process. Yeah. You know? I don't think it's failure that's the issue. It's stupidity that's the issue. And, again, it's the I think the well, biggest well, issue that you're running into is it's not – you make a bad game or you find something that doesn't click, all right, you learn from it. But when you have people that just don't understand normal economics, the problem is, is they're destroying the market – because they came in there, mommy and daddy gave them thirty-five thousand dollars, and they spent sixty because they didn't understand how shipping's works, and they couldn't ship it to Australia, they couldn't ship it to England at the correct cost. And then everybody else in the industry was like, "There is just no way you could have possibly. We, we could have told you there's no way you could have made three hundred minis for ninety-nine dollars." I don't. I don't think they're destroying the market because a like they self-correct themselves out, right? Like they'll get that money and then they're done because they spend it all wrong or mismanage their company or like you said they just don't know how to run a business they're not getting another $60,000 after that to fix it right but I think the thing that we have to realize is like 
the community, uh, the BGG community, or like the the people who are complaining on Kickstarter about things like shipping, are a very, very, very small percent of our customers. Right. And we have to be afraid not to like just say, "Hey, listen, you're a noisy customer. I'm sorry, but we don't want you as a customer." Yeah, like, because you're gonna get like uh, we saw it with so like um, at a game, uh, Heroes and Trips. And we had a bunch of people in the comments complaining that the the box was like an actual mechanical piece of the game that had a function. And people complained that like if they sleeve the cards, they wouldn't fit in the box. So like, we came up with a solution that you like for five dollars we added on a thing that let you store all the sleeve cards, but you could still take the box out and pass it around, and it wasn't unwieldy. We had ten people buy that, but like hundreds of people were complaining in the comments that they wanted it. So like anytime you have those noisy customers, it's barely worth it to like budge for them. Like don't let the customers run your Kickstarter is the, what the lesson needs to be. Well, it's like when you come here and you know you're doing a play test and someone during the feedback tries to redesign your game out from under you. Right. It's like, thank you oh, very much. <laughs> I, I appreciate that you would right. love to play this game that you're designing in your mind based on my game. That is not the game we're testing here. <laughs> this is the game we're testing yeah. here. Yeah. And I think that's a thing that people tend to lose control of, um, especially during cons that do feedback like Metatopia, where they forget that there's an agreement on this space. I came in as a designer. Um, this is my game, and this is what we're dealing with. You came in as a player, you're giving feedback, you are not the designer, I am not the player. Uh, and we have defined roles here. And I, I don't know, I just feel like I've, I've been in playtests where the designers have lost control of that space and they let players just like run off and effectively like change everything about their game and they're just like, oh yeah, and I can do that and I can do that and it's like, no, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. It worked fine. There's a simple mechanical solution to fix this one problem that cascaded into all of that. Don't lose control of your space. That's what you were talking about earlier with being a good playtester. Right. Yeah. Some right. people don't know it. Yeah. Well, as, as the designer, sometimes you have to control the situation. Right. Or just write yeah. everything down and then like disregard most of it later. Right. But they think, <laughs> they're right. They think, oh, he's written it down. Like Always that's super good. Yeah. You right. know, and, and I do that, but sometimes that empowers people who shouldn't be empowered. I feel like there's a fine line there. And once in a while, you meet a person that you need to be like, I'm sorry, but I'm just going to stop you there because this is going too far. Yeah, like, it's like, yeah, yeah. let's stop talking about that and let's move on to the next. Right, sure. sure. And you don't have to be a jerk There's a delicate balance, too, because, uh, like, so I know my game, I've, I've had I've had a couple instances where you have, you played with three people, right? You played a four-player game with three, with three people. Two of them are giving you super great feedback, mm. and they are, they are really, really good, and they understand what it means to be a playtester, and they're thinking critically about what they're saying. And then you have that situation where that third person is being you know a little thorn in everyone's side yeah. so it gets even more complex where you have to like balance you know making sure that the space feels safe enough for the two people you want to give you feedback all while trying to keep off the other person and then it gets even more convoluted so it's it's a big problem that you'll face I think a lot of the time because the chances of you getting three or four people that are perfect for playtesting your game that like your type of game yeah. that can think critically about it and that have experienced playtesting are like slim to none you're always gonna have that oh sorry yeah you're always gonna have that you know you have a, a 
every single a table of four or five yeah, yeah, people. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're, you're, not everyone's just going to love your game. Not everyone's going to be into the game that you that you have created there, and they're not always going to be in the same mindset. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just it's a lot about just taking criticism and, and just understanding what's what's warranted and what's not. You know, frankly, and like I'll often just let people talk. You know, yeah, like oh, Sharknado should be a trick-taking game. Like, <laughs> sure, like yeah, <laughs> tell me all about it, and then you know, oh, our time's up. You know, go away. I'm not gonna. <laughs> but also, like, you sort of never know when somebody's gonna say something. You'll be like, that's a dumb idea, but here's like this idea I get from that. So yeah, sure. I, I oh yeah, no, I'm not like talk. tuning out. Yeah, I've been my life every time you open your mouth. <laughs> Thanks. <buddy. laughs> Love you. Yeah. So, actually, here's a question: As the non-game board designer in this group, what do you guys look for in a playtester? Like, what makes a good playtester? Part of it is a warm body. <laughs> a warm um, body, wow. Yeah, they definitely need a pulse. <laughs> you gotta have soulful eyes that let me see into the future. Right, right, right. People's uh, feedback like tends to be really, ball. really skewed by whether they win or whether they lose. Um, I feel like it's hard to be objective through that because I've had people that were really, really, really salty uh, because they lost and could not get past that. I honestly, I try not. I try not to play my games all the way to the end because, kind of because of that, but also because I don't think you need to play the entire game to play test it. But, That's fair. But I think it's more important to watch what the players are doing during the game. So yeah. like, yes, anybody can be a good play tester, and you can get very important information off them just by watching their body language and what they're doing during yeah. the game. If they're, you know, picking up their phone, they're not engaged with the core mechanics, and you yeah. probably have too much downtime if they're. Well, that was something Gun taught me a couple years ago. He has, you know, object and subject of feedback that he records simultaneously. Right. Uh, and that's that's been life changing. Where it's yeah. like, you know, I'm half of my notes are what people are telling me, and half of my notes are this person is really engaged with this this mechanic they're making, heavy use of it. This yeah. person doesn't seem to be engaged with the game at all. You know, where did that happen? You know, track it back. You know. What, what catalyzed that to where they just shut down? Yeah, I always, I have a very visual memory, so I always draw a little diagram of the table. Okay. I give every person a number, and then I, when I take notes, I, I put that number next to that note. Uh, I think, uh, to me, the most important thing, I think, is the ability to think critically. And what I mean by that is, um, like, just... To me, a really good playtester is able to kind of analyze what's going on and think through step by step the feedback that they're giving to make sure that it's that it makes sense, right? And so I've I've run into a couple playtesters like that that have completely revolutionized my game, and uh, and and I like that especially because someone that's that can think that way is usually open to kind of riffing you know when they get go down a certain stream of conscious and you can kind of say well here's what I was thinking here's the thought process behind what you saw uh, what do you think about that and like how does that change what you say and all that stuff I think that ability to think critically is so rare and, and it's magical when you get it yeah. I mean it can be but I think you can kind of pull that out of players sometimes you know that's also there, true, there yeah. are those situations where it's like okay you're, you're feeling a little salty about losing the game but what about the game makes you feel that way and sort of pulling out those little right. threads and really digging into and understanding why they feel the way that they do 
parts of that are going to be that saltiness, but then there are the parts where you go, okay, this mechanic makes you feel that way, and the other players who have enjoyed the game also feel somewhat similarly. What about that mechanic makes them feel that way? And in those instances, it's super critical to be a good interviewer. Exactly. And so we need to sort of learn how to sort of facilitate that just as much as our playtesters need to learn how to help us, you know, get to those conclusions. It's a two-way street. Every relationship is a two-way street. So we just kind of, like, I've always found that that dynamic to be interesting, not just to be a part of, but to observe and to see how other people interact with, you know, each other. Mm -hmm. Somebody just... Oh, sorry, go ahead. What are you talking about? It's just us. (laughs) (laughs) Me and John want to talk. I've gotten really good play. God damn it, Doug. All right. (laughs) Uh, From my mother, and uh, I love her, but, like, Love Letter is a little bit too complex for her. Um, and I super want to play games with her. It's yeah, like, super weird and kind of the best, because it's like... Like, I'm coming down on Thanksgiving. Like, please do. Um, it's like, so Connect 4, do I put two in at a time? No, Ma, one at a time. Uh, but I want to put two in. Um, so... But, like, I've gotten really good playtesting feedback from her for stuff that I'm trying to make very, very simple. Yeah. It's just a matter of knowing if that the person giving you feedback is the right person to get feedback on. Like, I'm not going to take her feedback on something like kids on bikes because she doesn't do role-playing games and be like... She'd probably be into it. No. (laughs) She straight up doesn't read fiction because it's not true. How much feedback did she give you for Gothic Doctor? (laughs) She still doesn't know about Gothic Doctor. Yeah, we're very polite. We were all supposed to know about about Gothic Gothic Doctor. (laughs) They don't know. They don't know. They'll come out one of these days. No, but like, so... Like John said, like you know, 75% of the feedback that I like to collect is from the decisions that you make, how you play the game, you know, I want to see what you do, you know, what you say afterwards. Like, I sort of disagree with you because you will have the playtesters that are super analytical and interesting and want to talk to you for 25, 30 minutes, but I'm still not going to care about half of what they say, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Like, because you're trying to be analytical. And if you're trying to be overly analytical, you're probably trying to change aspects of the game that have already been designed. Yeah. I find the most analytical players are the ones that want to make a point. And I appreciate their point, but at the same time, they want to belabor it. They do. Right. I, I feel it. Uh, but there's also and there's also the very simple you know there's some very simple playtesters that are just like I like this I had fun great that's awesome that's all I wanted you know I wanted you to have fun with this game you had fun awesome I appreciate it I always try to set the tone for my feedback by asking what did you dislike about the game or what what did you really not like because to me I don't want any positive feedback like you wasting time telling me what you like about the game is wasting all of our time like I know what's good about the game and when I'm playtesting somebody else's game I'm not going to tell you that I liked your game and because you know what's good about it well now you're not playing into my games <laughs> yeah <laughs> but I'm going to tell you all the things I didn't like about it because that's the things that you need to know so Honeycut, J.R. Honeycut says there are two questions that he wants honest answers to at the end of a feedback session. Did you enjoy it, and would you play it again? Um, and and that's like that's his whole thing with observing people while they're playing and, right. and all that. But, but like to both of those ends, you can do the opposite. 
Like, sure. What did you not enjoy about it? And like, right. why would you not I, play the I game? Like, kind of thing? Like, like, give the negative aspects well, of that. Like psychologically you know, speaking, it's actually proven that it's a lot. It's a lot better for us to focus on positive terminology in terms of getting feedback. Well, sure, we all. I completely disagree. Right? Really? Yes. I, I think it's important to set the tone to let people feel like they have permission to talk about the negative things. Okay, that's because fair. innately that's they won't. Yeah, they're not going to. Yeah. They're, they want to they're going to say, I, I liked yeah. it. And, and then if they have nothing to say, they'll walk away. And it's right. the same thing in like in role-playing games. You have to ask very specific questions, otherwise sure. it, it's generalized nonsense. I think good questions I like to ask are, what's one thing that you absolutely would not change about this game no matter what? And what's one thing that you would like to see changed? And then that asks for one thing. It's right. going to be okay. hopefully their number one. People are generally not likely to repeat what other people have said. Or if they do, then you know it's either really good or really at issue. But it keeps them. And it also keeps them from going on for 25 minutes and like... Sometimes it doesn't. I fixed your game for you, right? Like, yeah. Been there. Heard that. Yep. Yeah. And, Did and, they? No. No. I was in that test. <laughs> and sometimes I even, before I start, say... Because sometimes you have a specific part that you're looking at. Yeah. I'll even say, look, I specifically want you to look at the combat mechanics. Yep. And that tells people, I want you to get into combat during this game, and I want you to, to go through combat a couple of times and tell me what you think about it. By all means, play the rest of the game. But please make sure that you go head-to-head a couple of times so we can talk about it. You know, and then when they do that, they're really focused on it. They're analyzing that, and then I find that that gives me more focused feedback. Yeah, I think if there if there is a specific thing, and like sometimes I'll just test portions of a game. Like last year at Metatopia, Dad and I just tested, and this year again, yep. like we just tested very specific portions of Kids on Bikes. Like we just did the the world creation portion, right, right, and then then we would separately test the mechanical portion of it. So like I'll do that with all my games. Like I'll just test like let's play the first couple minutes and see what the first few rounds are like. Yeah. Let's try to just play the end of it. And also, like, you're not eating up the entire evening. Like, we we have a weekly designer night that we meet up every Thursday night from, like, 6 until 10. And, like, you can only get so many games on the table in four hours. So, like, being able to cut the games fast is important and yeah. test that specific thing. Sure, absolutely. Well, that's one of the things I picked up from listening to podcasts earlier on. It was... Um, Stronghold and Portal, the guys that run those, Steve Wanakor and Ignacy, whose last name I can never pronounce. Um, but they were talking about how they run demos. Chevichek. Chevichek. Uh, and how they will set up, they'll like stack decks, they'll take pieces out of the game just to make the demo run smoothly. So you don't have that moment during the demo when it's like, well, now I have to explain what this one super complicated card does. And I found that I can even do that with playtesting. When I'm setting it up, I can actually stack things so that I know what's going to happen to the players to see how they react to certain mechanics. And it's not what I do all the time, but if I'm looking for a specific, like, does this piece work, I'll occasionally just get them to that piece. Yeah. I always try to ask um, what kind of feedback they want from me, too, because like, I kind of live in two worlds. Like, you want my feedback as a player or do you want me to tell you as an industry person what I think this game needs? You can say industry professional. You're an industry <laughs> professional by this point. Sure. That's what my badge says. So <laughs> I guess it's true. But like, I'm going to give you completely different feedback based on those two things right. too. 
And are you bringing this to market yourself, or are you just looking to find a publisher? Right. So setting those expectations, any expectations, helps. Yeah. I have an outside question. Is Ranga really the one, only one wearing one shirt here? No, I'm only wearing one shirt. But no, you've got a jacket on. Well, it's pretty, yeah, it's it's pretty it's double shirting. This is not a shirt. Yeah, I'm wearing jacket. Three. It is very chilly here. <laughs> it is very chilly. Yeah. That door, that door. I, just, I looked is around. We're all got like double shirted t-shirt, shirt, jacket, hoodie. <laughs> I've got like a hiking jacket. This is a double layer jacket <laughs> yeah. too. So. And, and Ranga's just like, I'm wearing a polo. What? I, I'm not going to lie. I am regretting the decision. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> Here's, here, well, here's another question nice from everything going on. Um, so there's two parts of this coat. Do you want half? You can't have half. <laughs> because, because, because the Allow market's... Allow him to suffer. <laughs> no. Because the market's changing, do you guys see yourself doing more gateway games now versus some of the crunchier games? Well, I mean, gateway's what I do already, so, yeah. you know, You're the, for me, that's a yes. Yeah, we're not talking to you. Well, <laughs> and, and I just design whatever I want to play. Like, I'm super not at all concerned about whether I make a living in this or not. This is a hobby. That's it. So it doesn't change what I'm doing. Yeah. I think the passion behind whatever project you're working on is super important. And so, like, if you if you happen to make a gateway game, that's fantastic for the industry that we're in currently because it's selling super well. But I feel like, you know, limiting yourself to I've got to make what's currently popular to sell isn't super productive. Like, if the passion is in the project, more often than not, it does sell because the passion shines through into the product that you create. And you like. Know? And like two and a half years ago when everybody was making rolling rights, by the time those get to market, which is now, which is now, that a lot of that fat is gone and they're looking for things that have innovated on that. Like Welcome 2 has done so well because it's not a rolling right, it's a it's a twist on that. Yeah, John, wasn't stage. it two like two years ago you said if you're just starting to design a pure rolling right, you're a year too late? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's it's more important well, so I, I think there's a couple things to your question. Mm-hmm. Like A because I drive my entire income from the industry, like I don't design small box games unless the design happens very fast. Like if I spend more than a hundred hours on a small box game, I throw it in the trash. Because I won't recruit because I have to look at every game that I design by the the amount of money I make divided by the number of dollars I spend on. If I make two thousand dollars on a game that I spent two hundred hours on, then I made ten dollars an hour, and I can go work in a factory at McDonald's and make nearly that. Um, and, that and that's the harsh reality of it for me. But like, if you're doing it because you're passionate about it, design whatever you want because that's the most important thing. But I think it's way more important to predict the market trends. I think four years ago people were looking for gateway games. Uh, the industry's been growing and we had a huge flush of people because of tabletop and you know a lot of other sources. Um, so things like Splendor were very popular. The traditional gateway games were starting to sell a lot more. Like Carcassonne had a huge resurgence to the drive. So two years ago I started to design a lot of medium weight games because I was predicting that 
all of the entry-level gamers were going to follow the same path that I followed, and after about four years, want to start playing certain media games like Stone Age and things like that. So I think that's why Dinosaur Island did so well, because it was a medium-weight game right at the right time that people were looking for. People who had come into the industry with light games were looking for medium-weight games. And I think in another three or four years, those are going to grow, and we'll see a resurgence in heavier games. And like it's going to be satellite, and at this point, light games are going to continue to do well because we're still growing at like thirteen percent a year as an industry. But I think the middleweight games right now. But again, you're too late if you start to design middleweight games. So, do you think this is going to grow then? Because I'm guilty of it. Uh, buying your youth, like I bought Trogdor the game, even though it's probably going to be a pretty bad game. Oh, nostalgia is not going to go away. Nostalgia is pretty big. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Sorry to the conversation. So you're saying... Oh, Ivan. Oh, hi. I'm Ivan. Um, so you're saying that the lightweight people from two years ago are now playing middleweight games, and in two years from now they're going to be playing heavyweight games. Probably three, but yeah. Okay, just, some of them are. Some are just staying. Oh, yeah, some of them are going to stay where they are. That's why the, the bottom's always going to be full. Yeah. It's going to be a pyramid progression. Just yeah. to break it down. So, But if it's still a growing industry, right, aren't there more people, younger people... Maybe getting into lightweight games, even as the lightweight people from two years ago are getting into middleweight games. Yeah. So yes, it's cyclical, but isn't there still a reason to create middleweight games? Because there's going to be light people coming up the pike sure. in a couple of but years. I, but I think the, the I think margins the, are higher on the higher end. Yeah. And there's a lot more like three years from now, a lot of people will have played Dinosaur Island and say, "Oh, if you want a really great game, that's it." Right. So if you're making a middleweight game to come out two to three years from now, it's got to be really effing good for people to notice it and say, because that market's already saturated. Right. People, people are, are going to that. see the successful games, and right. that like now middleweight games are going to balloon right. because people are seeing that, so it's going to become harder. So like you got to get get ahead of that curve a little bit and try to predict the next big thing. Right. Especially in a role like yours. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hi, Eric. Hello. Welcome. I'm Eric. How's your Metatopia so far? Uh, Metatopia is great. Uh, testing is awesome. People are wonderful. New faces, new friends, and uh, yeah, pizza. <laughs> I miss the pizza. Yeah, the pizza went really fast this year. Ben did not buy enough. <laughs> I told you. I told you more slices. Time. You weren't here. Ivan was here. Doug was here. I was here. Chris was here. It's, uh, Eric was late, but he was here before you. That is true. And that's all that matters. <laughs> I think next year, 20 pizzas. I still think I'm right. <laughs> My pizza math was off. I'm sorry. i got to update the chart. As the designers grow, the pizza grows. Yeah, you're getting a lot more people now. Are they buying in, or are you getting on the hook? Uh, so, so, I don't normally share this. Tanya and I paid $17 for dinner today. No. Okay, okay, okay. So I'm, I'm yeah, we're good. Hmm. I'd say that's fair. You know, if we went out to town, it'd be 40. Yep. Hey, here's a thought. Uh, on complexity, talking about lightweight, and medium weight, and heavyweight games, is that shifting? Is, is the audience um, changing at all to where a medium weight game is heavier now than what we would consider a medium weight game three or four years ago? So, so you're asking if the definition of those is shifting? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, 
private? Has your definition changed? Has your expectation of if somebody says medium weight gain? What's your, I mean, has your definition maybe changed if you look at what it was five years ago? So for someone like me, uh, I think not. Um, however, when you're getting new people into the into the into the industry, people who are starting to play games, you're talking about the average person's attention span is a lot less nowadays than it was ten years ago, twenty years ago, right? Like there are games. If you go back to the '80s and the '70s, you took games like you know Avalon Hill games, Starfleet Battles, games like those. Um, am I dating myself? Uh, you know, if you talk about games like those, you could not sell a game like that where you have like a thousand counters and a hex map that's the size of this table. It takes half a day to play. Right. It takes half a day to play. You could not. You could not produce that today, and no one would. No one would want to publish it. Um, I think I have chip and counter games. Is that games because it's heavy, or is games, that because it's poorly designed and complex? Um, so. If well, you tell me that Starfleet, like Starfleet Battles, I can't believe is poorly designed. I loved it too much, um, but it is. It's tremendously complex, and it's like you, you have papers and pencils and just too many things going on. And and modifier charts. I, I think that contemporary players don't want all that. They don't want all that overhead. They want to sit down and play the game. And even if it's a complex game. The mechanics have to be simple enough where you can just get in and start playing. You know, I, I, they don't want to sit with a with a 400-page rule book with you know six appendices. Right, their six-hour game as long as it's a 20-minute teach. Right, exactly. I mean, I think some of it is attention, maybe, but I think some of it is the evolution of the media as an art form. Like, I mean, if you look at really any media, like movies. Uh, think everything becomes more elegant over time, and games are definitely uh, game designs and art. Look at special effects from the eighties. Yeah. Well, that's that's an interesting point because when you talk about movies and you, you, you look at movies from the you know all the way up all the way up the chain of Hollywood, starting you know back in the thirties and the forties and fifties, special effects and and other elements became more sophisticated. Um, they had to sort of take over, and even games has that. Like you're competing now with, I can play a game on my phone, and it doesn't cost me anything, and I don't need to get five players around the table, and we are competing with them. But I think the reason our industry is growing so fast is people want that social aspect of I games agree. more yeah. than they used to. I mean, that's why I stopped 100%. playing video games and started playing board games. Yeah, 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 I think there's going to be like a pullback away from a lot of this tech where like people start realizing how deep, like how deeply ingrained in it you are and like when you're walking around staring at your phone like this the whole time but I mean, it, it's a tough sell to the other generation you know when I'm talking to them they're like well I could just play a video game if I'm playing a game by myself I mean so single player games are one of my sort of things that I like and, and solo like, games are blowing up right now yeah, yeah they are they're huge and I'm like well yeah but you could you could play a game with seven people online as well on your Xbox but nobody's going to be calling your mom terrible stuff when you're sitting around a table with your friends <laughs> so it's like what well, kind yeah, of there's no fun in that, that. <laughs> alright 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 these people will I'm just um... and Ivan the, the D&D club in my school has 50 members that's awesome um so like I mean granted like most of the kids are dorks like in the school <laughs> as a whole but like still I think there's a there's a resurgence to it that goes beyond like I, I think people do want even the younger generation does want to yeah, I disconnect think, and there's, reconnect here. Right. There's like an there's an authenticity. I think people will always seek out authenticity, and and there's an authenticity to games. 
whether it's through the artwork or the design or the mechanics or, or the packaging even like how like the act of opening the box and punching the like all of these things are it, yes like you said it makes sense it makes sense that people are, are being drawn to this well also I think like you have to I don't think it's necessarily an attention span thing I think it's a change in the world thing so like, there's been a big change in RPGs over the last 20 years where like now a lot of people are playing like short form two to four hour single session things yeah. because that's what fits into their life yeah. it's not that I don't want to play D&D all 12 hours straight I do I've got kids to feed and I got, stuff yeah like. I've got four kids I've got a full time plus job but also like if you look at those games that you're talking about the Avalon Hill six and a half hour game they were designed in a time when families typically had one job between them um, and there was just generally more spare time than what we have now like now almost every family's two incomes because that's what it has to be and you know everybody has things going on constantly so it's just I think it's just a matter of the way the world's changed also the, the gaming community is aging I mean you are getting younger people in but the majority of people they were playing these games in the 80s when they were teenagers yeah. they're still gamers they're right. not teenagers though and their time is shifted when I was right. in high school I could play Magic the Gathering for 12 hours if I wanted that wasn't a problem I can't know I didn't have a mortgage when I was playing Catan in college three or four games in a row yeah yeah, yeah. So Chris, you, so you just mentioned or kind of linked video games and how how technology has kind of grown. Uh, so the younger generations now kind of just it, it seems to be natural for them to just adopt electronic devices and you know their motor skills are all fast and twitchy and that's wonderful for them. Um, but since they're sort I work of in high school, they are not fast. They are very well, slow. <laughs> that's great to know. I'm glad that the competition is, is still pretty. The, the play field is pretty level. Um, but the but the point would be uh, since. Uh, board games have a much larger reach now since the industry has been booming um, and that is something that they're growing up with is is like is a gateway game as necessary is that like really a concept that's important or, or is it or can we trust our audience a bit more um, when it comes to games I think we still need the gateway and I so yeah. I think there's still a need for, for light and medium yeah, I don't and even heavy but do you think designing a gateway game I think game the game has important. to be approachable you can have a, like we were saying, a massively complex game. If you can do a five-minute teach, that's a gateway game. Yeah. Someone with a five-minute teach and a six-hour game, they will get into that. I, I want to play elegant games all day long exactly. because they're elegant, elegant games elegant and they're beautiful. The you've got to you've got to learn the core concepts. However, you learn them before you do other things. I mean, even a game like Candyland teaches you turn order and process and instruction following. You know, you've got to learn those things, and you've got to learn the, the, the basic mechanisms of a game, whether it's, you know, a long game or a, a shorter gateway-style game before you can get any further and move on to the heavier, more complex stuff, or even other things in that same uh, weight class. Which maybe I'm currently teaching a four-year-old how to play games, and there are a lot of very small steps in there, like mm -hmm. taking turns and not throwing the dice across the room. And you, know, you don't think about those things because we've been doing them for 30 right, years. You don't think about when you learn it because you've exactly. internalized it. Speak for yourself. To kind of expand, so maybe maybe the for the younger generations, if you think about how much time they they spend on like uh, social media, like Instagram and YouTube and like Facebook and stuff, maybe the thing that will that they'll take advantage of is going to like trusted sources, trusted reviewers, trusted like guides to help them go from a simple like starter game or a simple entry level game 
into some of the heavier stuff because I know that a lot of my exploration when I was just getting into the hobby was done through watching playthroughs and watching people that I whose opinion I came to to really respect go through these games and and, and to help teach me how to approach some of this stuff so maybe that's an area where the industry as a whole can continue to innovate and continue to uh, reach out to those younger generations to pull them in uh, and, and help them learn and, and experience the things I mean, that we love so much. I think we've seen that a lot through like things like Tabletop and yeah, exactly. the one-shot podcast and things like that. Like We're seeing more and more media related to it. And, and I think it speaks a lot to the entire industry's growth. Like you can tell an industry is doing well when secondary industries start to revolve yeah, around exactly. it. Like you know, we're seeing those media things being sustainable and making their own money, and we're seeing like accessory companies making their money. Yeah, game inserts. Yeah, trays, oh, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, last year at, at Pax Unplugged, there was like a whole section that was just for gaming tables. I mean, what we have Pax Unplugged, yeah, which is just um, a tabletop convention now. Yeah, yeah. I'm friends with the guys from Wormwood, and they are they're doing Wormwood. Ridiculously that's what well. I was thinking of. Yeah, ridiculously well now. Uh, there is there is literally a convention every weekend of the year somewhere in the United States or more or more but at least one like, well, I mean I went to 15 conventions last year and that's ridiculous like you wouldn't have done that 10 years ago yeah well and more and more games need those inserts you know we're an industry that wants more and so when the next expansion comes out the next expansion comes out and all of a sudden you've got all these components that are loose in your box and don't really have anywhere to go you need those really nice inserts to sort of organize anything you know stuff like Imperial Settlers or um, Scythe are uh, two games that I have broken token inserts for because of just the constant inflow of stuff that needs organizing and while you can stick them all in bags that's not going to take care of your components in the long term and it's a pain to set up it is just a chore to go through all those bags so having those really convenient setup times for me makes that super useful and it, it's a definite need in the industry that I think is being addressed in a, a very smart way honestly you know with games like Wasteland Express Delivery Service absolutely that's a great example well, I think great inserts that come with it make it quicker to play and that goes back to yeah. what you're saying getting new players in a lot of it is can you play this right away can I open the box and start playing yeah. And you're starting to see games that do practice games or tiered rule systems. It's like um, the Fast Forward Island series. Um, but the interesting thing loops back to the earlier point about like value ru- ruining the cost of games. Like, like we had to charge 80 bucks for Wasteland Express delivery services. A, it was a huge amount of stuff, but like that insert would retail for $30. Yeah. So the people don't want to admit the the realistic cost of the goods then. Like obviously it doesn't cost $30 to make, but. Part of that's the, the scale. So if, if you get the economy to scale, Absolutely. Need, but I mean, the industry is still microscopic compared to industries. Right. So we're not getting, like on plastics, you're not getting the scale that some, like a toothbrush manufacturer gets. Well, and really like, when people look at Kickstarters and they're like, oh, well, your Kickstarter's doing so well, your cost has gone down considerably. Like, no, there's there's a price break at a thousand, and there's a price break at three thousand, and there's a price break at five thousand, and you're not going to see another price break until maybe ten thousand, and that's like pennies per copy. It's, it's nickels and quarters, it's not dollars. Like, yeah. yes, so that is. You hit the two million copies when you print that, you're good. But they don't like discount it at two million. Like, there's more like, oh, I'm printing ten thousand at a time now. I'm doing great. And but, you got to print all two million. Yeah. You got to know. Yeah. 
Well, I got I'll say that having to buy something because of expansions, because you didn't know if there was going to be some, I've never had an issue with. Um, some of the stuff for site we have, it just bother me. I think what drives me nuts is when you have a completed game and you have to buy the third-party stuff to make the game function correctly. That's yeah. That's always frustrating. That Absolutely. is annoying to me because I'd rather either spend a little bit more on the game, but it feels like you got some publishers that are going so cheap that they're cutting out. You know, you can make a pizza so cheap nobody wants to eat it, and I'm just starting to see that. But they'll still buy it. Yeah. Papa John's. Yeah. Well, that's that's the problem. People are going to go and they're going to buy that pizza anyway before they find out they don't want it. Yeah. And a new person's going to come along and they're going to buy that pizza too. And that pizza shop stays in business. Yeah, it's... Because you've got three choices in town. And one closes at 8 p.m. <laughs> and one makes that weird square pie with too much crust. <laughs> so you go with the one where the sauce is just a little bitter because it's the best of your choices. But a thing that a lot of people don't talk about is... And it's something that designers don't necessarily dip into and it's on the publishing but the multiplier, like when you look at the MSRP of a product, the formula is typically like landed cost to get it produced and brought over to the US, plus the shipping cost times X. And it used to be like six years ago, it was like times four. So like you knew if a game cost 50 bucks, it probably would cost you like 12 bucks to manufacture, and you'd have that much of a buffer. But there are definitely companies now that are like times eight. And you can see it in the product because you're paying $60 for a game that A, doesn't have everything you need to play it, and B, has like stock art all the way through the game. Yeah. But I think most of us at the table know some games like that have come out and done really well. But like those companies are using a much bigger multiplier because they can. Is it also because they need to? Because they went from having the guy whose name is on the box on the payroll to having seven people on the payroll, and so they need to pay their you know they need paychecks every week. So there's additional cost involved to manage. There is. That weren't there before. So. But yeah, I think I think a lot of it's testing what the market will bear too. And I mean, the cost of goods is going up and up and up. Like the cost of papers went enormously. Transportation's going up. Yeah, transportation is going to be worse and worse over the next couple of years. If the tariffs go bad. Yeah. So board games aren't getting cheaper, you're saying? Oh. Cool. Well, we are at like an hour and a half, so let's wrap this up. <laughs> uh, just go around. We'll do who you are again, a contact info, and then we'll be done. I'm Ranga, and you can reach me at, through Muffin Games. I'm Jonathan Gilmore. You can reach me at, at John Gilmore on Twitter or Facebook, whatever. I'm Ben Beagle. You can reach me at Some Fat Kid on Twitter. That's S U M Fat Kid. Call 1 800 Ben. <laughs> Sean McNulty, nuggetsyl at gmail.com. Uh, Dave Beaver, you can reach me at wonderingtribegames at gmail.com or Facebook slash wonderingtribegames. Luke Minch, and you can contact me through minchluke at gmail.com or through the uh, Cardboard Herald. Uh, Doug Lewandowski, you can get me on Twitter at Lebzilla. Just like it sounds. Uh, Ivan Turner, and I'm on Twitter at IG Turner. Uh, Fedja Buzancic, and Instagram uh, Muffinster. <laughs> 
I'm Eric Caesar of Devious Devices, and you can find us uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Devious Devices. Okay, well, thank Back you so again. much for talking. This is going to be some editing. Goodbye. That's all for this episode. The Board Game Workshop is a member of the Indie Game Report. Check out their reviews and interviews at theindiegamereport.com. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, especially our inventor-level supporters, Chris Turner, Alan D. Eckert, Brad Batchelor, and Roscoe Shop. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash theboardgameworkshop. You can follow the show on Twitter at TheBGWorkshop and on Facebook at TheBoardGameWorkshop and join the show's Discord channel to discuss episodes. You can get links to all of these and the show notes for all episodes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Thanks for listening.